We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. In late 19th century France, the divide was between the tricolour and the fleur-de-lis, between those determined to firmly establish a secular French republic and those who wished France to remain true to its heritage of throne and altar. As we all know too well, the past is prologue, as described in the book For the Soul of France in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, a defeated and humiliated France split into cultural factions that ranged from those who embraced modernity to those who championed the restoration of throne and altar. And given the nationwide divide over the anti-Semitism of the infamous Dreyfus case in this struggle for identity in France, what is the place of anti-Semitism now in France and for the future? In that 2011 book, Arthur Frederick Brown chronicled the intense struggle for the soul of a nation and painted a picture of France's deep fractures, which have continued to this day, as seen in the recent election. Ripped apart by the Paris Commune on the one hand, and shortly thereafter intoxicated with the attraction of right-wing nationalism, uh, that happened in the late 19th century. How much of the May 7th presidential election was it a fight between the old right-wing nationalist nativist hierarchical establishment and the relatively new commercial Republican, with a small r, secular state. Supporters of the National Front's Marie Le Pen longed for the France of Brigitte Bardot and strongly opposed the France where women are allowed to wear burqas and other religious garb on the streets. And what about the recent apparent resurgence of anti-Semitism in France? Since Muslims are seen as aliens by many French people, what about Jews? There certainly have been more attacks against both Muslims and Jews in France. While leaders of French Jewry expressed relief at the defeat of far-right candidate Marine Le Pen in the presidential election, concern remains that she received more than a third of the vote. Could her loss actually evolve into a win for the racist, fascist nationalists? Well, our guest today is Danny Solomon, who penned an article on the French election in The Forward. Danny, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hi, how are you? Good. And people may not be familiar with The Forward. It's been around a long time. Founded in 1897 as a Yiddish language daily, The Forward soon became 
a national paper, the most widely read Jewish newspaper anywhere. By the 1920s, its circulation outstripped the New York Times. It chronicled the events that affect a population of immigrants eager to learn their place in American life and published regional editions around the country before any other newspaper. The English language Forward was launched as a weekly in 1990. Its perspective on world and national news, its unparalleled coverage of Jewish arts and culture and opinion have made it the most influential nationwide Jewish media outlet today. More than a million unique visitors turn to theforward.com each month. Dan Solomon is a writer at The Forward. He's author of a recent piece in The Forward called Marine Le Pen Lost, But Her Frightening Message is Far from Defeat. He also received his undergrad degree last year from Harvard, where he wrote a thesis on the rightward drift of France's Jewish intellectuals. Whoa, that is surprising to me. Rightward drift of France's Jewish intellectuals. Daniel, were you surprised at the outcome of the May 7th election? Did she do better or worse than you expected? Well, Bert, I would say that she did better. I mean, I, I actually, well, let me qualify that. I thought two or three months out from this election, Marine Le Pen would probably garner 35 to 40% of the vote in the second round. She wound up coming slightly below that at 34% roughly. Now, I think that, you know, the question of how she did, though, relatively, I would say she did very well when you consider over the sort of long durée of French history and the progression of the far right in France, you have to consider the fact that 40 years ago, when the party was founded, it could not even make the ballot eligibility requirements in France to get you know, 500 or 1,000 signatures to make local races, regional races. And over the past 40 years, uh, we have seen the party slowly, in, you know, especially under Marine Le Pen, who took the reins of the party in 2011, we have seen the party really make a concerted effort to become a party of government. The last time that uh, the National Front made it to the runoff, in the French presidential election in 2002, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the founder of the right. party, Marine Le Pen's father, got 18% of the vote. This time we see 34%. Yeah. In 2012, when Marine Le Pen was in the first round of the election, she got 18%. Mm. So I would say what we see in France on the far right is we see a gradual but inexorable move to becoming a party of government, mm. to becoming a party that can forcefully contend for power against traditional forces. And I think it is significant also to consider that traditional parties of government, whether it be the left-wing socialists or the right-wing republicans, they were swept away in this election. The two parties that yeah. advanced to the second round were Marine Le Pen's front and Emmanuel Macron's en marche party, which is a center, center-left new movement that was seen as a sort of alternative to either the Republicans or the Socialists. So I would say, you know, this is, you know, a coup in some ways for Marine Le Pen. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of scary, I must say. And uh, interesting, en marche is sort of like forward, is it not? <laughs> it means, it means, you know, there. It's like there are various translations. It can mean onward, right. on the move. It's one of these sort of new ways, uh, you know, 
I would say it's almost like a Bloombergian party, yeah. except, you know, it probably has mass appeal, unlike Michael Bloomberg in our own country. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a party that advocates market reforms for fixing France's growth problem. Mm. It has almost zero growth. And, you know, writing the ship on employment. You have a 10% unemployment rate in wow. France right now. Yes. And uh, Emmanuel Macron, who was the finance minister, the economy minister, under Hollande for mm-hmm. about a year, year or two, um, he, um, you know, he comes from a banker background. He worked mm. at the Rothschild firm in Paris. And uh, mm. clearly he is someone who is embracing of France taking a more capitalist turn and of slashing some regulations and slashing some taxes. And, uh, you know, even as a, you know, I consider myself a leftist by American standards, I don't necessarily think that's off-base, right. considering how heavily restricted in some ways the French economy is. I noticed in your article that Le Pen was trying to win support from French Jews. As you write, quote, she promised to serve as the best shield for French Jews, unquote. That certainly didn't lack in chutzpah, I would say. Certainly Jews in France are aware of a long history of anti-Semitism in, in France. Is it the fear of radical Islamic terror against Jews that may have attracted some Jewish people to her side? How well did that work? Well, we don't know yet in the sense that we don't have the exact data to come out of this election to analyze the results that tell us what the Jewish vote did in this specific contest. That will probably come later. And the French, unlike some other countries, they're very reluctant to sample based on ethnicity or huh. religion. Huh. So that polling data and those, that, those exit polls, those surveys, uh, they tend to come a little later. They tend to be harder to come by. But we know what we know from looking at anecdotal evidence hmm. and from the statements of some in France, in the Jewish community, and also from some of the data we have from the 2012 election, uh, we know that uh, Jews have been, in some numbers, though not, uh, you know, not a majority certainly, mm. have been moving, in some respects, to a more favorable opinion of the National Front. Wow. Generally, Jews in France vote for the center-right party. That is the plurality. That that's where most Jews go with the Gaullist party, the Republicans. Uh, that is their uh, traditional habit. Uh-huh. But I do think that the threat of radical Islam, uh, a feeling of being besieged by terror, has in some ways uh, created a very ironic uh, you know, alliance between some Jews and the Front National. Uh, and I think that some people are willing to uh, go with Marine Le Pen because they think that she is the toughest on uh-huh. Muslim immigration, on terrorism, what have you. And I would say, uh, you know, that Marine Le Pen has tried very hard to rid the party of uh, explicit anti-Semitic rhetoric. Uh, that has been a key goal of hers. In some ways, it is the central project of making the party mainstream and turning it into a force that respectable French people can vote for. 
And I would say some people question the genuine, you know, right. the, how genuine that is. Right. Uh, I would say that ultimately, whether it is genuine or not, the reality of the rhetoric will constrain any Front National government in power, and that, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think there is a hard distinction between words and actions. I think that the, the new rhetoric itself could be called substantive. Uh, interesting. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, Danny Solomon, who uh, writes for The Forward. And he wrote a piece uh, about uh, called uh, Marine Le Pen Lost, but her frightening message is far from defeat. And I, I do wonder about, you know, uh, it, could it be uh, simply window dressing that, uh, you know, she, she wants to look better than, uh, than her dad did, who was, wasn't her father, you know, fairly uh, openly anti-Semitic? I'm not sure about that. Is, is there a real change or, or do we not know that? And certainly... As we know in this country, as, as you know, Danny, fear is extremely powerful, a very powerful political tool which can be and often is manipulated. And, and Donald Trump used fear, and uh, I can see how uh, Marine Le Pen, by looking tough against the, the Muslims, uh, it, it could, could appeal to that. So the party... Sir, go ahead. Sir, you know, I think that... I can't. I think no one, none of us, can divine what is in Marine Le Pen's heart, uh, or for that matter, her mind necessarily. Right. And I again, I do think that the Front National's changes are opportunistic. Yeah. You know, um, for example, you see the Front National, which used to be a party in the '90s that would court Catholics. You know, Jean-Marie Le Pen used to start rallies with Catholic mass. Um, uh-huh. Now it is a party that is very strict in promoting state neutrality on religion, oh, a concept in France called laïcité, and then using that to call for the exclusion of Muslims who wear hijabs or a form of bathing suit called the burkini right. from the public sphere. Um, you know, so I would say this, and, and I, I would apply the same analysis to anti-Semitism. I would say the change in rhetoric does have a substantive effect because it constrains what this party would be able to do in power. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it creates and crystallizes a set of expectations for this party if it were to reach power. At the same time, is it cynical? Is it opportunistic? Sure. Probably. Yeah, I mean, it can be both. Yes, that's um, true. You know, that, that's the argument that I would make about the Front National. For those who say it's a sham... You know, I don't actually agree with that. I think that the Front National is probably a different party to some degree than it was in the 90s. Um, that doesn't mean that we should uh, we should give them power. Right. It doesn't mean that they actually like Jews. In fact, Marine Le Pen has and continues to have some people with neo-Nazi ties and viciously anti-Semitic views in mm. her inner circle. I do think that the rhetoric, though, acts as a constraining force on what the party would do if it were to reach the Elysee Palace, you know, if Mm -hmm. she were to become president. And I think that is important. So, you know, I want to inject some nuance into that discourse on whether, you know, this is real or not. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, you never really know. And it's interesting how how she said, you know, aside from radical Islam, which is the scary thing, Le Pen's other 
enemy was what she labeled the other the other totalitarianism economic globalism she claimed both work for the disappearance of our nation both the radical islam and economic globalism quote work for the dis- disappearance of our nation france as we live it and love it end of quote uh, of the 34% that her party received any sense of which factors uh, best connected fear of globalism, fear of radical Islam. I'm guessing some combination of both. Or wh- which are people most connected to? Which fear? Mm. I would say that what you have in that message, the message of the totalitarianism that she put out during her campaign. You know, you know the two totalitarianisms. One being capitalisme sauvage. You know. So capitalism uh-huh. and fundamentalism, Islamist, Islamic fundamentalism. I would say, you know, in, in terms of looking at it as an ideological structure, you know, as how these two things fit together, in some ways this is a very coherent and seductive appeal. And I would say, to some extent, it is partly true. And by that, I mean what you have, you know, the argument that she makes in a sort of Trumpian fashion is that borders are kept open in order to satisfy the demand of elites for cheap labor. And along with that, you have a third world immigration flow, which produces a terrorist threat, cultural threat, what have you. So she links a cultural and economic threat, uh, you know, vis-a-vis France's culture, vis-a-vis its working population, and uh, I would say that the two work together, and it's very disturbing, I think, the fact that they can work together for those of us on the left who believe in a, a liberal society that combines elements of social democracy with an acceptance of multiculturalism yeah. or living in a multiracial society. Uh, I think that we have to be disturbed by that. I think we have to uh, think carefully how we respond to it with a message that it is as coherent and psychologically satisfying. I think when we're looking at the far right in France, we see that they ran up huge tallies. The only two departments, mm. the only two regions, you know, uh, where Marine Le Pen reached a majority of voters were in the north, yeah. the northern Rust Belt, yeah. like our Rust Belt, mm-hmm. where uh, employment has factory work has been hollowed out by you know, the concentration of economic opportunities, urban centers, and the outsourcing of jobs to economies that are uh, poor or automation. Um, And I think that we cannot, as as people on the left, we have to be very conscious of the fact that when Marine Le Pen talks about patriotism, when she talks about this common endeavor, you know, she talks about the French people as a family supporting each other. And then we'll, you know, links that to this message of exclusion. You know, we are inside, these people are outside, and, uh, you know, uh, uh-huh. you know, and then you know, this rhetoric of the two totalitarianisms, we cannot understate how seductive and appealing that is for people who have seen social ties, social capital wither with deindustrialization, and also in some ways who have seen their own, you know, families, uh, you know, we've seen some family breakdown in France with rises in, you know, single motherhood, uh, you know, family breakdown. And I think that we have to understand the powerful emotional force 
that this sort of rhetoric has and how it plays on all the tables, you know, cultural, economic, mm-hmm. psychological. And that's the only way the left will be able to confront this problem. And I would add this. The left in France, to some extent, has a neoliberalism problem. Mm. The left in France is seen as being, to some extent, too aligned with capital. And that doesn't help. Most of the people who are now voting for the Front National, who are in the Northern Rust Belt, these were the base of the Communist Party in the 60s and 70s. They're called in France the class populaire. Um, So, you know... uh, this is a very dynamic and fluid situation, and we need to take account of all the various motivators that push someone to make a vote for the far right. Fascinating. It's a like uh, like here in many ways, and that uh, people are afraid they've they've lost jobs, uh, like the uh, Rust Belt in, in northern France, and uh, it's certainly easy to blame the others, capital T, capital O, meaning either the. Uh, a lot of the immigrants or uh, globalism, and and I, you know, I know there's that powerful French identity, tremendous French pride, and quite frankly, it's understandable. Uh, British pride, I don't quite get because their, their food sucks, <laughs> but the French have great food and great wine. And in, in all seriousness, you know, there's a sense of cultural identity, and that can, you know, the, the idea of uh, the threat of losing that, you know. I, I wonder how, I mean, let's look at the, at the immigrants. Um, is it an issue of, of, I mean, I don't know what percentage of the population of France now is relatively recent immigrants. I mean, let's face it, they had an empire, a big empire, and it all kind of came back to them. It was far-flung empire people from, I mean, they had an empire from Vietnam to much of Africa. And it seems like, those former colonial nations, not surprisingly, come back to the center of the empire looking for better lives. You, you, you write that uh, her attitudes on immigration and radical Islam demonstrate a historical amnesia. France colonized the North African countries from which most of its Muslim newcomers descend. The conflict between these immigrants and the state traces to imperialism and a long-running xenophobia that still contribute to anti-Arab and anti-Muslim discrimination. I wonder how much of the influx of immigrants from the former colonies is something that was kind of inevitable. You know, it's like a, a form of entropy. You know, it just sort of comes crashing into itself. And how? Tell us about the the how the immigrant situation is seen. How are people really afraid of it? Is it is it all over France or just in the southern France? What about this uh, immigrant issue? It's a very good question. I think that you know. The fact is that in the 50s and 60s, France uh, evacuated its colonies. It relinquished its colonies in Tunisia, Algeria, uh, Morocco. And that is where, you know, that is where its first, you know, let's say non-European mass immigration came from. Because in the 30s, you actually saw mass immigration into France from places like Italy, Poland, you know, lots of anti-fascists, lots of Jews, mm-hmm. also lots of Spanish, you know, fleeing Franco. Um, so France, you know, actually France in the 30s was a leading country of immigration. It was a leading country of European immigration. Mm. Of course, you had some guest workers from North Africa. And also, by the way, interestingly enough, you had a lot of black people, from Africans from sure. Senegal, serving in France's Continental Army during the World War I in the 1920s. 
a major sticking point between the French and the Germans. But not to get too off track, in the 50s and 60s, you saw this first wave of immigration from North Africa. Now, France has historically, more than other European countries, had a problem with its birth rates. France has not really budged in terms of its population since the late 1800s. It is a source of intense anxiety. They even have a term for it. They call it vinitalité. So, um, you know, this is also another reason why it was so hard to legalize abortion in France. This has a very powerful effect on gender relations. Anyway, so in the post-war, the guest worker programs were implemented to drive economic growth, there was an idea, obviously, these guest workers would go back to Algeria or Tunisia. <sighs> that did not happen, um, obviously. And, uh, you know, because of its economic and demographic needs, France has been drawing a steadily growing, uh, you know, non-ethnic French, if you want to use that term, population since the 50s. Uh, I think today about 9% of France is Muslim. Probably about 15% of France is, uh, you know, uh, immigrant or first generation, 15 to 20%. Wow, that's pretty um, high. And obviously, people in that population have adopted, let's say, you know, French norms to French cultural norms to one degree or another. There's a spectrum. Uh, uh, yeah, I was wondering about that's what that. I would say about that. Uh, but I would, I would say that if you want to understand the conflict in France between its Muslim population and the state or other communities, even the Jews, for example, you need to take account of this colonial history. I yes, mean, absolutely. let's just look at Algeria, for example, very briefly. Um, if you want to understand why French Jews and French Muslims have tense relationships, one answer, one place where you have to seek that answer is Algeria. In 1870, the French state granted Jews in Algeria blanket citizenship in this decree, the Cremieux Decree. Um, this gave them a privileged status vis-a-vis Muslims who were not given such citizenship unless they renounced their personal status as Muslims, meaning their right to regulate their marriages, divorces, funerals, what have you, in special Muslim courts, in Sharia courts. Um, And I think, you know, you look at these examples and you can see similar dynamics playing out in places like Morocco and Tunisia. And so, so many of the hatreds, the enmities, the suspicions that animate relations between different ethnic communities in France today and between the state and Muslims or the state and immigrants go back to this kind of predatory and complicated and troubled relationship under imperialism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously that complicates the question of whether, uh, you know, are these Islamic radicals or these third world radicals, what are they? I would say, you know, it's very hard to have a comprehensive accounting of the extent to which different factors like religion, ethnicity, nationalism, well, what is the appropriate mix? What is influencing this dynamic? I would say that more in war we see that opposition to the state, opposition, you know, terrorism, you know, is framed as Islamic-inspired. But lots of French commenters and others have made the argument, I think it's a valid one, that we see instead of, you know, the radicalization of Islam, 
we see the Islamization of radicalism. Huh. You know, it is Islam is being sort of grafted onto these pre-existing wow. grievances in France. So I would say, you know, you can never have one-factor explanations for right. what's happening on the ground. It's not just Israel-Palestine. It's not just colonialism. It's not just Islam. It's a mix of these things Absolutely. accreted over centuries, yeah. which is producing a, you know, an environment of tension. Well, I guess so, and I know you know as I, as we've said, you know the the French pride and and being French, and I mentioned Brigitte Bardot before. I mean, she is very. Uh, I don't know if she supported Le Pen. I would guess she may have. She did. I'm not surprised because I mean she she feels like there's a French identity, and the other identities, the other cultures are not okay. We have to be French, it, and I wonder, you know, from, from what I've seen of of immigrants in France, which isn't much, quite frankly, and here in the United States, it seems like immigrants really try to be American here and try to be French there. You know, they, is there a problem of immigrants maintaining their identities and not becoming fully French? I guess that there's a perception of that. What's the reality, do you think, Danny? Mm. Well, I think, yeah, let's complicate that perception, obviously. Sure. I think it's a spectrum. I think that you have lots of people, you know, uh, who have uh, North African uh, last names and French surname- and French first names. You uh-huh. have lots of people from North Africa and elsewhere who have made a very uh, comprehensive effort to assimilate or integrate culturally into the society around them. And I would say... You know, we neglect that in these simplistic narratives about some unassimilated mass of Muslims living on the outskirts of Paris, right? Right. Um, But I think that, you know, we need to understand that we have two dynamics at play in in understanding why integration, assimilation, uh, multiculturalism, whatever term you want to use, is not turning out, you know, there's no... We don't have social peace right now in France. Or in America. uh, You know, the traditionally French ethnic community and some immigrant communities. I would say that it's twofold. One is the fact that, you know, all people cherish their culture and want to hang on to it. I mean, who am I to say that anyone is to relinquish their particular culture? I am talking to you from a Jewish newspaper. Um, You know, uh, clearly I have not. you know, I have not assimilated into some sort of vague and undistinguished Americanist homogeneous American identity. Yeah. Right. Um, and we I can... Understand, I understand the desire of, of people course. who are Muslim or Algerian to hold on Absolutely. to those identities. Um, I think that we can't ignore the fact that assimilation entails... And I think as, as a Jewish person, we know this... I, I know this deeply. Assimilation entails benefits and costs, mm-hmm. um, I think that's one side of this. I think that on some level, people are reluctant to give up the particularity of their culture. But I think we also need to acknowledge that because of the colonial past, because of lingering uh, bigotry and racism within French society, it is clearly demonstrable that it is much harder to secure apartments in certain neighborhoods, get jobs, get you know, uh, into certain schools, if you have the wrong last name, mm. um, 
you know, this is just an objective fact yeah. about, you know, how French society works. Well, let's look and at... And that should bother us. You know, I think that on one level, uh, you know, speaking as someone who hopes to harmonize right and left viewpoints on this matter... Would be nice. I think we need... Uh, we need we need the state to put, you know fight to fight social exclusion on one hand, and fight the, the term in France is used communitarianism on the other. You know this sort of push for communal autonomy, and I think these two things go together. Um, and I also think, by the way, in terms of deciding whether people have assimilated into a French identity, I think that's so tormented in certain ways, in the sense that there is one level of French identity, which says, you know, we're not, you know, we're not bound to any sort of ethnic matrix. You know, being French is just like, you know, embracing a set of liberal democratic values uh, and of, uh, you know, the rights of the individual. But then on another level, you know, we have, we can't deny that there is a cultural France, a France of Moliere and of, uh, de Canard, and, uh, you know, I think that it depends what sort of assimilation you're talking about, yeah. what sort of integration you're talking about. And I think that that complicates this conversation. Ambiguities in the conversation about what it means to be French. Ambiguities in the conversation about even what French republicanism means. Is it some abstract universal ideal, or is it something attached to a particular religious mm. ethnic vision. And I think that that has to be part of this conversation. Well, I can't help but think of here in America, you know, there there are people who feel like, uh, you know, white, Anglo-Saxon, heterosexual Protestant men should rule. And that's the culture. But I think it to most people we recognize that's not it. You know, being American is means means believing in the Constitution, believing in our our values here. And in France, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity. Does does diversity weaken us or strengthen us? I frankly would maintain, and I suspect you agree, it kind of uh, it doesn't weaken us at all. I don't see how uh, a, a woman wearing a burkini threatens a woman wearing a bikini. I, I just, I don't see it. I, I think, you know, France is, is big. France is powerful. And uh, it's it's going to continue. It's not going to lose its identity in the European Union, I wouldn't think. Is there a lot of fear of that? I mean, there's that, it, it follows the whole Brexit thing where, you know, there was a lot of, uh, oh, I think uh, xenophobia there that, that England perhaps might be losing its identity. Of course, I don't buy any of that. But, you know, it, now France voted to stick with the euro and to continue as as part of the the European uh, uh, alliance and, and market. Uh, are, are people how concerned do you think people in France are aside from the the cultural issue? Well, I suppose it's cultural too. I mean, they have fought against Germany in the past, I believe. And you know, what about fear of being assimilated and losing its identity in the in the European Union? And I wonder, you know, given how uh, Macron is so uh, uh, affiliated and identified with the European Union, I wonder how this might play out in the uh, relatively near term. Well, you know, I don't really think that, you know, unlike in Britain, where you've seen an influx of Romanians and Poles 
who were seen as sort of this cultural threat, this wave of EU immigration that was part of what motivated Brexit. I don't think that you have so much of that in France vis-a-vis the EU. I would explain the antipathy to the EU as more sort of an, uh, a geopolitical flavor, which is that France sees itself as a grand power uh, still to some extent. Uh, Charles de Gaulle had this phrase, you know, politique de grandeur, you know, a politics of grandeur. Mm. And it was under that logic that de Gaulle, you know, uh, was sort of a wary member of the, of the NATO alliance. Uh, you know, he was very suspicious of American power and American effort to lead the West, and he pursued an independent foreign policy. Um, and he actually, by the way, vetoed the entrance of Britain into the EU <laughs> until he you know, died and they were able to enter the EU. So I would say some of this is just, you know, this, this reluctance of this ambivalence that France has and its pride about mm-hmm. its projecting force and power abroad to, to think that it has to link itself to any sort of interna- supranational organization. Obviously, there's also some resentment about some of the regulations that the European Union enforces. And, you know, some people blame the EU for certain things about economic policy, like you can't devalue your currency, you know, to stimulate growth. And there's some of that, but I think most of the push beyond Frexit, that's it's a combination of that sort of, some of these economic grievances and some of these just geopolitical grievances. And I don't see the, the hostility let's say, primarily cultural, in the sense that you have people who don't look like you showing up around you. Um, In terms of diversity, I think that viewing the U.S. and France in comparative perspective is very interesting. We in the United States, I think, even in our worst moments, we've always, you know, sort of accepted some concept of, you know, disunity. Individuals will be different one to the other, it's okay that there is a, you know, a Swedish enclave and an Irish enclave and a Jewish and Italian enclave in your city. And, you know, certain amount of communal autonomy is fine. Yeah. But something we need to understand about France is that it has a different tradition, you know, a liberal tradition, but a different way of thinking about liberalism, a different way of thinking about democracy and what the public sphere does and what it operates. So during the French Revolution, you know, you had, uh, you know, this, this, you know, the Jacobins, you had this Jacobin ideology. And, you know, there was an idea that in order for us to be universalist, for us to embrace all of humanity, we all sort of had to become the same. You know, we're, you know, you know, uh, we're all the same. And in some ways, uh, you know, French national, French republicanism sets up, sets, sets out to make that statement a reality you know, by refusing to acknowledge cultural differences, hmm. by, you know, ref- by banishing religion from the public sphere. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, France was very reluctant after World War II to adopt this special legislation giving Jews, you know, you know s- stating like, you know, Jews will get certain forms of restitution for their plight in the Holocaust and World War II because... That's so antithetical to how the French think about how the state should operate. 
which is that the state is not to recognize distinctions. It is to level them. You know, this is an old idea that goes back to the French Revolution. It is not how we think about diversity and difference in this country, but it is a very strong ideal in France. And in some extent, Hmm. what you've seen is a group like the Front National has taken up this idea, this Jacobin ideal of subsuming difference in the public sphere to, you know, say, we don't want any Muslim particularity in the public sphere. We don't want women on beach in, on the beach wearing a burkini. We don't want a girl in the school wearing a hijab. And I would say in some ways that is a radicalization of this doctrine of laicite, of state neutrality of religion, of uniformity. But there is a tradition of it, and it is sort of working off that. And that's the thing to realize about the FN. The FN is this force, this front, the Front National right. this force, which is combining disparate elements of France's political tradition, picking and choosing among right, left, things that don't exactly right, fit right. that label, and assembling them into a new political formation, which can be used to you know, beat up Muslims and to push their agenda of a more sort of closed nationalism. Wow. It's, you know, it's playing off these ambiguities. Yeah. It's playing off these quirks in France's political tradition. So in some ways it's very simplistic to call the Front National, and inaccurate I would say, to call it a, a fascist party, to call it you know, uh, just simply an offshoot of the 1940s. It's not. It's a very diverse and diffuse party in terms of what it's drawing on. That doesn't mean that it should not be, as it should, firmly combated. Wow. Complicated. It's true. Uh, and as you mentioned, tradition, and tradition is, is strong there. I mean, normally uh, there's the elections, from what I can tell, swing between the institutional socialists like Francois Hollande and uh, people like his predecessor, Nicolas Sarkozy. Uh, and Le Pen tried to, as you say, bring in some left-wing economic message with kind of right-wing fears and, and, and bigotry. And here we had uh, both uh, Le Pen lost, and uh, this is, he didn't have a, a, the the winner didn't have a party. Macron did not have a party. There is the traditional left. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon was the candidate of the French Parti de Gauche, the left party. Where did the traditional left and traditional conservatives go in the May 7th election? Were they spread out all over the map? Or what happened to, to that kind of traditional uh, you know, lining up of things? Mm. You know, it'll be, it'll be clearer, I think, when we have some of the data from the sociologists and the, the demographers and the pollsters who will break down all the data that comes out of this election. But my initial impression about where you know, the sort of traditional worker left went is that a lot of them went to Mélenchon, a lot of them went to Le Pen, and almost none of them went to the traditional socialists. Yeah, yeah. You know, who had succeeded in sort of holding, uh, you know, in, in garnering most of the left-wing vote from the 80s through the 2000s, you know. Yeah, they lost so, it. In some ways, uh, you know, the center, if we want to say that the socialists are the center right. uh, in, in worker, you know, worker groups between the Front National and the Parti de Gauche, you know, uh, Mélenchon, center did not hold on the left. You had people who were attracted to Mélenchon's very strong anti-capitalist message, which, by the way, is also wedded to a support of immigration and open borders, though also he wants to pull 
EU. And mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways there's some convergence on international policy between far right and far left. And then some of them, a lot of them went to Marine Le Pen. Um, you know, I would say that um, the left has fractured. And I think that we have to, you know, we're in the middle of witnessing a rearrangement to some extent, not only in, in France, but in the, in the West, about how class plays into voting patterns. And, mm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I would say that, uh, you know, it's alarming. Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. I mean, uh, I believe, I'm not positive, but in the early days uh, in Germany, uh, this Adolf Hitler fellow uh, didn't win at first. He got something like 30%. So, I mean, not to say Le Pen is Hitler, certainly, but the title of your article is Marine Le Pen lost, but her frightening message is far from defeat. Now, Americans may not yet recognize the damage caused here by the election of Donald Trump, but it seems that Europeans have generally uh, not reacted positively to Trump becoming president. Do you think that the Trump factor helped defeat Le Pen? Could could people in France see that this guy's a nut? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's he's far right. How, how did was there a Trump factor in this election? Do you think? Well, I think that people were there was a sense of urgency about defeating the far right that Trump may have contributed to. I think that. Uh, honestly, I think Le Pen would have lost in any case. I think that she's playing a long-term game in terms right. of normalizing her power, her party over the long term, right. and then eventually trying to reach power. But I think that, you know, I don't think Trump, you know, I, obviously some saw this as a proxy battle. You know, Trump sort of weighed in for Le Pen, and you had this Obama endorsement right. of Macron. Right. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that... Uh, the Trump phenomenon, you know, you know uh, was necessarily so much a part of this. I do think that, you know, in looking at, I think that the the French looked at Marine Le Pen, and what they understood was this may not be the same fascist, you know, this may, it may not be a neo-fascist party, this may not be a Vichyist party, mm. the regime that ruled during the Nazi period, but it is a party that has very dangerous ideas about, exiting the euro, about leaving the European Union, about linking up with illiberal international forces like Russian President Vladimir Putin. Right. Um, that is kind of hypocritical on some of its pledges to protect gay people, even as it, as it opposes gay marriage and protect women, even as it opposes abortion rights. Hmm. You know, I think there's some of that. And I also think there is a recognition that you know, while the SN might be right that there are issues with immigration, its solutions, slamming the door closed on, you know, future immigration, demonizing Muslims, uh, you know, uh, really beefing up police and poli- police and prison, you know, these are not things that are going to ease or solve problems. These are things that are going to exacerbate the situation. You know, I think that if you, if you care about if you care about solving, if you care about easing tensions, you really have to have a blessed be the peacemakers attitude. Hmm. And that is not the Le Pen attitude on this question. <laughs> so, no, it's not a Vichyist party. It's not a fascist party. It is a dangerous party, though. And we should be able to articulate that without relying on historical analogies that don't necessarily hold. Uh-huh. And I'm hoping that the French are 
in general, more sophisticated uh, than many people in the U.S. It is widely suspected that Vladimir Putin's forces hacked into the election process, and it was no secret that there was a mutual admiration between Putin and Le Pen. How did how did that affect the election? Do you think? Well, I think we're. I think it actually. I think that you know it did not help her. We don't know if it really hurt because I mean, you know, she was underperformed her poll slightly. I would say that, honestly, you know, it probably didn't have much of a direct uh-huh. impact on yeah. how people voted, uh, you know, this relationship between uh, Le Pen and Putin. But clearly Marine Le Pen is part of this sort of illiberal international that stretches from Washington to Paris to Moscow. Uh, you know, they have this idea, which is that, you know, they are going to reject the values of elite liberalism and support traditional values. And they have, you know, I would say, you know, the term that is used to describe this ideology, I think, you know, the the academic term is cultural pluralism. The idea is that, you know, every country, we, we don't want diversity in countries. We want diversity among countries. So, for example, Marine Le Pen will talk about, you know, it's great that we have all these countries and they each have their own ethnicity that sort of runs them. They imagine a world of nation states, not a world in which states are multicultural. Right. And I think that is linking the ideologies on both sides of the Atlantic and in Moscow. Uh, and also, one thing to remember is that, um, you know, there is a long history of uh, contact and collaboration between uh, Le Pen's party her father was involved in this, and Putin. And, you know, this goes back a while. Also, some of it is the fact that the only people who give Marine Le Pen's party money on loan are the Russians. Mm. <laughs> and they love our Trump, too. Well, now... Indeed, they do. Oh, Trump and Putin are, are, are good buddies, for sure. So now we have uh, Pres- President uh, Emmanuel Macron. He is a wealthy banker, and he will lead. Can he lead a France afflicted by zero growth, high unemployment, and long simmering social divisions? Uh, he's slightly left of center, I guess. It's a difficult challenge ahead to keep Le Pen in check. There needs to be growth of the economy, including job creation. That that's a, a tough hill to climb. How? What are his prospects? Do you think, Macron? Well. I mean, let's look at it on several levels. On one level, Emmanuel Macron is a very new phenomenon in France yes. because he's not attached to a party that is, you know, in existence for very long that has the structure needed to compete for seats in the parliament. The thing to understand about France is that you have a very strong presidency. And right yeah. after the presidential election, you have legislative elections. Generally, the party that wins the presidency is going to win the legislative, legislative elections. But and um, you need to get that. You know, while you have a very strong executive who can appoint a prime minister who is responsible to the president, you need a working parliamentary majority that you right. that is usually people just of your own party. But you know, now there is some talk that the parliamentary majority will be cobbled together from representatives of various parties, depending on how En Marche, the Macron party, Mm -hmm. performs in these upcoming legislative elections. This is really quite unprecedented in French history. And, you know, 
we need to understand that the French presidency, this whole state structure, was centered around Charles de Gaulle. In mm. some ways, his personage, you know, mm. this strong executive who is going to dominate the legislative branch and have his people there doing his bidding. And that will be very hard to maintain in the age of Macron, uh, because, you know, so there is a chance a high chance that he will not be able to enact his legislative priorities. And I imagine that mm. will be crippling, even if, you know, let's say his legislative priorities, you know, leaving aside whether his legislative priorities work to revive the economy, it might right. be hard to even get them passed, wow. you know, past all the sort of vested interests and his need to collaborate. Um, and let's, you know, I think just the challenges, even if you're just looking past the sort of, issue of getting a parliamentary majority, the challenges are legion in the sense that, you know, France, you know, uh, France is stuck in a cycle of zero, zero growth and high unemployment around 10%. Uh, And that's not the real unemployment rate, which is higher. That's just, you know, like the U.S. Uh looking for work. can't find it. That doesn't include discouraged workers. So I think that, you know, on some level, if you want to save France's social model, you know, which is a generous social safety net and mm-hmm. uh, certain guarantees, you have to grow the economy and you have to grow the employment ranks. But because France, because that social model depends on, you know, certain protections for workers and certain uh, ways of structuring regulation and taxes, uh you will eventually have to erode it to save it, (laughs) which is a contradiction. I mean, I think that, again, I'm, you know, someone who is probably on the left Mm -hmm. economically, but I do think if you look at France, it's just sort of objectively true that a lot of the growth problem and a lot of the unemployment problem is due to a state that has imposed regulations that make it very hard for people to invest capital and grow it. Um, and so that's the challenge. That's one of the challenges. Another challenge, as I said, is the challenge of how you fight terrorism while also making people feel integrated and uh, accepted, you know, uh, in immigrant communities. And uh, I think just another challenge that France faces related to that, which all Western democracies face as we become more multicultural and diverse, is that people are inclined to support social benefits for people who look like them. You know, look they, like them, we right. Abide, Homogenous societies tend to have more generous uh, mm. social safety nets, tend to be more welcoming towards social democracy. And I guess, how will you create or how will you fashion a French identity that binds together the diverse citizens of the nation uh, in a context where immigration is continuing, in a context where you have some degree of multiculturalism, I think these are very difficult problems, and, you know, uh, it's certainly beyond my scope to say that I have definitive solutions to them, and I think that, unfortunately, because the, you know, the burden, the onus is on Macron. He has to get things done. Marine Le Pen is not. She's an opposition. Right, exactly. Much easier position. I think there is a high chance that you will uh, see him falter and fail in office, and that she will have a very strong chance in the coming... 2022 presidential contest. The other thing to remember, I just want to flag this, is that the people who defeated Macron, sorry, defeated Le Pen, were not, you know, 
they were old. Most of you know the people who oh, wow. sixty five and plus over fifty. These were the people who broke heavily against Le Pen. Actually, she ran almost even among young people. So uh, I think if you're looking at the trends and you're looking at just the political situation, you could very well have a situation where she's well-positioned five years from now. Huh. Okay. On that optimistic note, <laughs> the article as is titled, uh, Marine Le Pen Lost, But Her Frightening Message is Far from Defeat. Yeah, if people want to follow your work, thank you, Danny Solomon, for being with us. Uh, forward.com, is that the best way to do it? Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Or you can get me on Twitter at Daniel J. Solomon. Um, and uh, I appreciate you having me on the show, Bert. And, you know, these are difficult issues, and it's nice to be able to have an in-depth conversation on them. You like educated uh, voters and participants. Thank you so much for being with us, Danny Solomon. Okay, very, very educational. Thank you. A little fun here, okay? Louis the Sixteenth was the king of France in 1789. He was worse than Louis the Fifteenth. He was worse than Louis the Fourteenth. He was worse than Louis the Thirteenth. He was the worst since Louis the First. King Louis was living like a king, but the people were living rotten. So the people, they started an uprising, which they called the French Revolution. And of course, you remember their battle cry, which will never be forgotten. You went the wrong way, old King Louis. You made the population cry. Cause all you did was sit and pet with Marie Antoinette In your place at Versailles And now the country's gone kablooey So we are giving you the air That ought to teach you not to spend all your time Fooling round at the Folie Bergere If you had been a nicer king We wouldn't do a thing But you were bad, you must admit we're gonna take you and the queen down to the guillotine and shorten you a little bit. You came the wrong way, old King Louis. And now you ain't got far to go. Too bad you won't be here to see that great big Eiffel Tower or Bridget Bardot. To you, King Louis, we say fooey. You disappointed all of France. But then what else could we expect from a king in silk stockings and pink satin pants? And when they told your wife Marie that nobody had bread, she said, let them eat cake. We're gonna take you and the queen down to the guillotine. It's somewhere in the heart of town. And when that fella there is through with what he's gonna do, you'll have no place to wear your crown. You came the wrong way, old King Louis. Now we must put you on the shelf. That's why the people are revolting, cause Louis, you're pretty, revolting yourself. <laughs>